One of my favorite memories from Easter as a child was the annual Easter egg hunt that my parents would put on at our house for our cousins and my brother and I. Uh, We had a large yard next to our house with about an acre full of pine trees and bushes, so there were lots of places to hide eggs. So it was a pretty challenging Easter egg hunt. It it was actually more challenging because there were six of us kids, but but only four eggs. Um, actually, there, there are a lot more eggs in that, little eggs, you know, with candy, but, but no one cares about the little eggs with candy. We just care about the four extra large eggs full of money. Uh, each of these eggs had a few dollars, which back then a few dollars was halfway to a G.I. Joe at Walmart, so that's pretty serious stuff. Uh, we, we desperately searched for those four eggs, and i got to be honest, cash was so important to me as a little child that I would willingly bowl over my cousins and certainly my brother to be the first to get to those eggs. Um, I, I remember one year I got totally shut out. I, I, I didn't find any of those four eggs, and I, I got so angry that I abandoned my family and went to my room and shut the door and pouted. Uh, Obviously, as a little child, I I had missed the point of Easter. Yeah, death and resurrection of Jesus, but there's money to be had, and that's, that's what mattered to me. Well, sadly, that's not the only time in my life that I have missed the point of Easter. It happened again this week as I was preparing my sermon. I've rarely had so much trouble pulling a sermon together as I did this week. Uh, Hours and hours of of study and meditation, pages and pages of outlines. And I sat down yesterday morning and I read through it and I realized, man, none of this makes any sense. Uh, It's not coming together. It's not clear. It's not relevant. I've got nothing. And so uh, I went to God in desperate prayer. There's nothing that will make you pray like having to preach on Sunday and having nothing to say on Saturday. So... (laughs) I went to the Lord in desperate prayer, and as I, as I prayed, God helped me to realize, um, Blake, you missed it again. Here it is, Easter weekend, you missed it again. I thought back to the previous day, Good Friday, the day when we are all supposed to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. But wait, I, I was too busy trying to put together a sermon. The, the time that I spent in the Word on Friday was time spent in desperation trying to find a passage to preach. I was so stressed out, so busy, that I didn't spend any time in worship and praise of God. I'd done it all over again. I had missed the point of Easter. So after some prayer, I decided to head in a little bit of a different direction this morning. I don't have an in-depth, well-illustrated sermon for you. I've got no PowerPoint, as you've probably figured out. I have no insights to share with you from Greek or Hebrew this morning. In fact, most of what I tell you this morning, you have heard before. I don't want this morning to be about my sermon. I want this morning to simply be about what Jesus did on this weekend about 2,000 years ago. You all know the story by now. You know the events of that first Easter weekend. We read about them a few weeks ago in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there now. Philippians chapter 2. I think that there probably is no more appropriate passage in Scripture to read on Easter weekend than Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. You have heard this before. You have studied it. My prayer is is that this morning this passage will sink in. This morning, this passage will sink into your minds and you will grasp the significance of it. The passage starts with the first event that we celebrate on Easter weekend, Good Friday and the death of Jesus Christ. If you'll start with me in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, having studied those four verses in a lot of detail, I have come to believe that if I studied this passage eight hours a day, every day for the rest of my life, I would still not fully grasp it. It's too big for me. It's too huge for me. I can't wrap my limited mind around what this passage is saying. It's telling me that Jesus Christ, the almighty, infinite, eternal, all-knowing, omnipotent Son of God, second member of the Trinity, through whom all of the universe was created, who made you and me, who has no limitations, who has never suffered any need, he willingly left the beauty and bliss and perfection of heaven to come and take on human flesh and live among us, a sinful and rebellious human race. But but that wasn't all. In obedience to the Father, he confronted the arrogant religious leaders of his day and came under their wrath. He who is the almighty judge of the universe submitted himself to the fist and to the whip of godless men. It wasn't enough that he clothed himself with the flesh of humanity, but he who is the creator willingly allowed his creation to rip that flesh off his back and pierce that flesh with nails as we hung him on a crucifix, the most painful and humiliating form of death in the ancient world. What humiliation that the creator allowed himself to be cursed and crucified by his creation. I want you to to think about those words for a minute. Let let that sink in. What humiliation that the Creator allowed Himself to be cursed and crucified by His own creation. No one has ever given up more than Jesus Christ. No one has ever sacrificed more than He did. No one ever. Why did He do it? First Peter tells us, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That's the good news in Good Friday that the creator took our sins upon himself and died in our place. See, our sins have to be punished. The the evil thoughts and words and deeds that we have committed, God is a perfectly just judge. He must punish them. So Jesus stepped forward and he took the wrath of God in our place. He took our punishment upon himself. As we read about earlier from Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But as you know, the events of Easter did not end on Friday. We go on and and continue reading in our passage, starting in verse 9. Paul says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, those verses presuppose something. They assume that the story of Jesus did not end in verse 8. 
They assumed that Jesus was not defeated by sinful humanity, that that death could not have lasting victory over the Son of God. Three days after his death, Jesus did something utterly remarkable. He, He walked out of the tomb. Jesus is the one and only human being to go toe-to-toe with death and win. As Eddie read to us from Acts chapter 2, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He couldn't be held down because he is the Son of God. He is the author and creator of life. But on Easter, we don't just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We also celebrate what happened right after, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. When God the Father vindicated his son, the events of of what we just read, verses 9 through 11, that God the Father raised Jesus up and exalted him to his right hand and enthroned him over all the universe, giving him all power, all authority in heaven and earth. What we're celebrating today is that though Jesus chose to be humbled, he is humbled no more. On Good Friday, he died like a common criminal, but on Easter Sunday, he rose like a conquering king. He won victory over sin, Satan, and death, over all of his enemies. That's why we celebrate today. Did did you know the church gathers together on Sundays because this is the day that Jesus conquered death. This is the day that Jesus conquered his enemies. That's why we always meet on Sunday mornings to celebrate every single week that Sunday was the day that Jesus did it, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he conquered death, that because he conquered death, we now have hope in life. What is it that our world fears above all else? Death. The human race spends untold billions of dollars every year trying to cheat or at least delay death because they're so afraid of it. But because of what Jesus did on that first Easter Sunday, we have no reason to fear death anymore. Death can have no lasting victory over us because Jesus has already beaten death. We too will be resurrected. We too will defeat death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sign and promise to us that death will not win, that we too will rise with him. That we who know Jesus will have victory over death. That we will live eternally in the flesh with God. So in summary, what is Easter all about? It's about the humiliating death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, The two most significant events in all of human history. If you read your Bible from cover to cover, you find that the entire Old Testament and all of the Gospels look forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then all the rest of the New Testament looks back at it. Those are the two most significant moments in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus. For that reason, this this holiday, Easter, when we commemorate those two events, this is the most significant weekend of the whole year for us. This is the most significant day of the calendar. This is our day of days. Your birthday can't compare with it. Your anniversary can't compare with it. Thanksgiving can't compare with it. Not even Christmas can compare with it because this is the day. When Jesus delivered us from the power of sin and the fear of death. This is the day when Jesus won the victory over sin, Satan, and death. When he delivered us from fear. When he gave us hope in this life and the next. Without Easter, we are lost. 
Without Easter, we are still dying in our sins. We will die eternally separated from God. Easter is our reason for hope. It is because of Easter that the human race has hope, that the human race can be forgiven of our sins and be given eternal life with God. Yet sadly, the majority of the world does not realize that. The majority of the human race does not realize that Jesus has already earned for them forgiveness and eternal life through his death and resurrection. And so the majority of the human race, day after day, strives to earn it. They strive to earn their way back to God. They strive to merit God's love, to earn his satisfaction, to somehow earn eternity with him in heaven. The particulars vary from religion to religion. For Muslims, it's practicing the five pillars, including prayer and giving day after day, practicing that to earn the favor of Allah. For Jews, it's practicing much of the Old Testament, particularly some of the dietary and ceremonial laws, day after day trying to earn their way to God. And even in our own religion, Christianity, so many Christians are still trying to earn their way to God through good works. They're trying to earn the favor and love of God through, through praying, through reading the Bible, through giving the poor to the poor, to, to even coming to church. Per, perhaps that describes you this morning. Perhaps when you really think about it, the reason at the end of the day that you're here this morning is because you believe that coming to church is earning you favor with God. That it is, it is somehow earning you a little bit more of the love of God. It is somehow making you a little more worthy of the love of God. Now, that's a belief that Paul knew well. He understood that belief really well. Turn the page to Philippians chapter 3. Before Paul came to know Jesus, his whole life was spent trying to earn the favor of God trying to merit God's righteousness, trying to merit God's salvation through human effort, through human qualifications. And as we'll see in a moment, um, Paul actually did pretty well at this. From, from a human standpoint, Paul did better than 99% of us at trying to earn his way to God. Look with me starting in chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Paul says of himself, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul is listing for us all of his qualifications, all of the things that before he met Jesus, he thought earned him favor in God's eyes, earned him righteousness before God. He, he starts with his qualifications from birth. His qualifications through his good heritage, starting in verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day. For an Old Testament Jew, the, the outward sign that you belong to God's people, the nation of Israel, was circumcision for boys. And Paul's saying, hey, I was circumcised. I had that mark in my flesh. It proved that I was of the nation of Israel. I was a Jew. But I, I was no ordinary Jew. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. When you study the Old Testament, you find that, relatively speaking, the tribe of Benjamin did pretty well. Relatively speaking, it was good to be part of the tribe of Benjamin. They were relatively faithful to God throughout the Old Testament. So this was an honor. Paul saying, hey, I belong to the best tribe. In fact, to sum it all up, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I wasn't any old Jew. I was a Jew of Jews. I was among the best. I had the best heritage to claim. 
But Paul wasn't content to rely upon his good heritage to earn his way to God. He, he went on from there. He, he strove. He put in work. He put in effort to, to achieve things that would make him righteous in the eyes of God. He starts with his education. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were the religious scholars of Paul's day. These were the guys who knew the Old Testament inside and out. They'd memorized much of it. They were the guys you relied on for an authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. Paul's saying, that's who I was. I was schooled in the Old Testament among the best of them. I knew the Bible better than anybody else. Then Paul went on and he added things to his education. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now that sounds odd to us. Let me explain. Uh, For an Old Testament Jew, there was nothing worse than blasphemy. There was nothing worse than calling someone God who was not God. And Paul had not yet met Jesus, so Paul thought Jesus was just some carpenter from Galilee who claimed to be God and then died as a cursed criminal on the cross. So Paul could not stomach those people who called Jesus God. And so he persecuted them. He arrested and even executed Christians, not out of hate per se, but out of zealousness for God, out of a faithfulness to God. He wanted to so protect the name of God. He goes on from there and he really sums up his life before meeting Christ. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now Paul's not saying that he wasn't a sinner. Uh, The Pharisees had boiled all of the Old Testament law down to 613 commands that regulated everything external in your life. What you ate, what you did, where you went, who you hung out with. And Paul's saying in view of those 613 commands, I was faultless. I did not knowingly violate any of them. I had it all together. Really what Paul's telling us is that if, if you're here this morning and you are trying to earn your way to God, Paul probably had you beat. As a Jew, Paul had all the right boxes checked. Paul had done everything humanly possible to earn his way to God, but then Paul met Jesus. On his way to persecute more Christians in the city of Damascus, Paul was traveling and and he encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in an instant, he realized that that all of the the things that we celebrate in Easter are actually true. He, He realized the truth and the significance of the events of Easter. He realized Jesus was no mere man, he was the son of God. He realized that Jesus did not die because he was a criminal, he died as a sacrifice for Paul's own sins. He realized that Jesus was not decaying in a tomb. He was the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. In an instant, he realized the truth and significance of the events we celebrate in Easter. And because of that realization, everything about Paul's life changed. In an instant, his whole orientation on life changed. Look with me starting in verse 7. Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, Paul uses a couple of significant terms in this passage, terms from accounting, from the practice of accounting, keeping an accounting ledger. Uh, Gain, that refers to a profit, which you put in the positive part of your accounting ledger. Loss, that refers to a liability, what you put in the negative column of your accounting ledger. What Paul is telling us is, is 
at the moment that he realized the truth of what Jesus did, that, that Jesus died for his sins and rose from the dead, Paul realized that all of this human merit, all of these achievements that he had amassed for himself over the course of his life, they weren't gain, they were worthless. In view of what Jesus has done, they were worthless compared to the righteousness that Jesus had earned for Paul in his death and resurrection. All of Paul's achievements were nothing but scrap. Furthermore, not only were they worthless, they were actually a loss. They were actually a liability because for years they blinded Paul to his desperate need for Jesus Christ. So because of this realization, as he comes to understand what Jesus did, Paul makes a pretty radical change for the rest of his life. He chooses to quit striving. He chooses to quit trying to earn his way to God, to put that that struggle down. He chooses to count all of his achievements, all of his great heritage, his education to be worthless before God. And he simply chooses to put his confidence in Christ alone. For the rest of his life, he will trust only in what Jesus did on the cross and in the grave. That is all that will matter to Paul. As Paul says in verse 9, he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God, not from me, on the basis of faith. So before meeting Jesus, Paul was pretty much the most righteous man among us in terms of what human beings can accomplish. But then he met Jesus, and in view of what Jesus did on the cross and in the grave, Paul counted all of his heritage, all of his education, all of his achievements to be nothing but rubbish, refuse, compared to what Christ had done. And so for the rest of his life, he clung in faith to Christ alone, to the righteousness that Christ had earned him on the cross and in the grave. So now I I turn it back to you. I want to ask you, what does Easter mean to you? Are you, like Paul in his early days, still trying to earn your way to God? Are you still on that treadmill running after God, trying to merit God's favor, trying to earn God's love, trying to merit your way to heaven? Are you trying to balance the scales with good work so that you look good in God's eyes? If, if that's you, then you haven't yet grasped the meaning of Easter. Easter means that your striving is finished. Easter means that your work is done because Jesus has already done it all. Jesus has already earned for you infinite righteousness. Through his death and resurrection, he's earned all that you need, forgiveness and eternal life. And all you need to do to receive that gift of infinite righteousness is simply believe. Just like Paul did on his way to Damascus, simply believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really did die for your sins on the cross and then rise from the dead. He did all of that to give you forgiveness and eternal life. If you will believe that, then you will be saved forever. Your work is done. You don't have to keep trying to earn what Christ has already given you. Simply lay it down. Simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. If there is something keeping you from embracing the truth of those realities, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. Don't let another Easter go by where you're missing it. Where you're missing what Jesus did for you. You can quit trying to earn your way to God because Jesus is this morning handing you his gift of infinite righteousness and eternal life if you will simply believe. What about for the rest of us? What about those of us who have received Jesus' infinite righteousness through faith? What does Easter mean for us? 
How do we respond appropriately to the events of Easter? I'll be honest with you, I don't have a specific answer to that question. As a guy who has often missed the point of Easter, uh, my challenge to you would be do whatever it takes not to miss the point of another Easter. Do whatever you personally need to do to come to grips with the meaning and significance of Easter. Now for you, that may mean spending time this morning in Scripture, going back and looking at Isaiah 53, looking at Philippians 2. Or that may mean instead sometime this afternoon pulling out your journal and writing out thoughts of thankfulness and praise to God. It may mean getting alone on your knees in prayer before God. It may mean, in contrast, getting with friends, with family, with your spouse, and talking about Easter, reminding one another and discussing what Easter means. My challenge to you this morning is do whatever it takes today to come to terms with what Easter means. There is so much to distract you today. There are Easter egg hunts, there's endless buffets, and there are keeping your kids from getting grass stains on their new Easter outfits. There's a lot to distract you. My challenge is please take some time today to wrestle with what Easter means, to come to to grips on what Jesus did on that first Easter some 2,000 years ago. I'm going to let you out a little early this morning because I want to give you some margins in your schedule today. I want to give you some extra time so that you can get home, you can get settled, and you can do whatever you personally need to do to get with God and come to understand how significant Easter is. Don't miss it like I almost did. This is the most significant weekend of your entire year because this weekend celebrates the two most momentous events in all of human history. When Jesus Christ himself, the creator of the universe, sets you free from sin and Satan and death through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. Do whatever it takes today to come to grips, to come to terms with the incredible significance of Easter. Let me pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we come before you Humbly this morning, we confess that all of our efforts to try to earn our way to you, all of our striving to look good in your eyes or in the eyes of others, it is all meaningless, Lord. Because we already have infinite righteousness and eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we've trusted in his death and resurrection, then we are already loved infinitely and unconditionally by you. We are already guaranteed an eternity with you in heaven. Thank you so much for that reality, Lord. Thank you for what Jesus accomplished for us on that first Easter 2,000 years ago. I pray for everyone here, Lord. I pray for anyone here who, who has not yet come to believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Please, Lord, um, help them to see the truth of those realities. Please speak through the cloud in their mind and help them to see the truth that Jesus really did die for them, that, that that's all they need, that they don't have to try to earn your love anymore that they can simply rest in the death and resurrection of Christ. For the rest of us, Father, please help us today to come to grips of the awesome significance of the events we're celebrating. Help us to believe that this is our greatest weekend all year, that this is our day of days. This is the most significant moment on our calendar all year because this is the day that Jesus set us free from sin and death. Thank you for sending your Son who willingly, freely chose to give his life on the cross for our sins and who beat death, who stood up against death and walked out of the tomb. Thank you so much for Jesus and the hope that we have in him. Help us to live a life that honors him as our Lord and our Savior.
Thank you for this day. We pray all this in the name of your son. Amen. All right, go from here and be blessed on this Easter. See you next week.